0: there welcome to the real world np podcast i'm liz Rohr, family nurse practitioner educator and founder of real world np an educational company for nurse practitioners in primary care i'm on a mission to equip and guide new nurse practitioners so that they can feel confident capable and take the best care of their patients if you're looking for clinical pearls and practice tips without the fluff you're in the right place Make sure you subscribe and leave a review so you won't miss an episode. Plus, you'll find links to all the episodes with extra goodies over at realworldnp.com slash podcast. This week on the podcast and YouTube channel, I am interviewing Dr. Omalara Thomas Uemedimo. She is a pediatrician physician. She has been in practice for over 20 years. She's really, really special. Um, so she gives a longer intro, uh, what she does and her backstory, which is just so inspiring. After, after this little part where I do the intro part, once we get to the interview. But um, the the thing that I love about this episode, and I say that I love every single episode I know, but the thing that I really love about this interview is that she is she is a physician who went into practice wanting to make big changes in the world And um, kind of hit some pieces of like, oh, this isn't exactly what I thought I was going to be. And it wasn't exactly what I wanted. Um, She also has mega ambition and she's navigated challenges with burnout. And um, yeah, she just has an enormous heart. And I just feel like she's such a special person and such a a phenomenal role model for myself, for the real world MP community um, of, and, and just just hearing her story alone, I think is gonna be really inspiring for you to hear whether you are a new nurse practitioner or a student or physician associate student or or new grad, or if you've been in practice for a while. And I mentioned this a little bit in the interview, but it's sort of like, sometimes we're just like, well, I, I have these big ambitious goals and I wanna see like this big change in the world and I wanna make the world a better place and I wanna make healthcare a better place. And it's like, it's just sometimes we hit this bump in the road of like, wait, is this the way that I wanted to do it? Or how can I kind of shift or pivot into it being like truly what I'm actually after, um, while at the same time navigating burnout? So, um, so yeah. So, without without further ado, I want to share my interview with um, Dr. Omolara, Um Just, I guess, real briefly, just as a recap, because she mentions it in the interview, but it's nice to hear it um, more than once, is that she actually has two different companies, and she has um, uh, Strong Children, which she mentions a little bit more about. It's just a kind of holistic wraparound services, real true community care um, for kids in uh, New York City. And um, her second company is really helping to help uh, practices, especially uh, BIPOC-led practices, to just have the financial assets and funding and support that they need to do not just regular old primary care stuff, but what are those bigger, like, mission-driven pieces of being in community health, being in primary care um, that will help them to do um, that great work. and I just want to say and and she mentions this too in the interview, but it's not it's not only for people who are bipoc providers or you know bipoc uh, nurse practitioners physicians or that have their own practices it's really like this this conversation is really a larger conversation about how it's all hands on deck and how we can all be involved um, in making things better. And I think that whether or not this exact situation applies to you, of like, oh, I never want to open my own practice, I think that it's really helpful to hear about the context of it and and our places within the healthcare system and how we can still have agency and some of those options of what they are, despite the challenges that we are faced with when it comes to the day-to-day. Um, workload of primary care. So without further ado, here's my interview uh, with Dr. Amalara. Thank you so much for being here. This has been such, um, I was looking back at my um, email and it's been quite a long time in the making trying to meet up and, and have this conversation. So thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much, Liz. I'm super excited. That's awesome. Do you want to start by introducing yourself? Yeah. So uh, my name is Dr. Omolara Thomas Iwemedimo. I am a pediatrician. I'm a, I like to say, born and bred New Yorker, um, but I'm also the daughter of Nigerian immigrants. And I think that that's really important. Um, I think a lot of us go into what we do and not who we are, actually. Um, And so I, my career um, focus right now is actually transitioning from just you know, doing clinical medicine as a pediatrician, which I've been doing for 20 years, into running two organizations. One being Strong Children Wellness, which is an integrated care practice, a community based integrated care practice based in New York, where myself and my co founders, Dr. Souza and Dr. Nicole Brown, actually try to bring and integrate primary care, mental health care, and social care coordination. Um, in under-resourced communities of color based in New York, and we partner with community-based organizations to bring our care into their organizations and closer to the communities they serve. And along those lines, I also am the founder and CEO of Melanin and Medicine, which is the healthcare consulting company that focuses on increasing the sustainability of BIPOC-led practices and being able to help them develop contractual partnerships with nonprofits, with organizations, schools, um, non-traditional healthcare organizations to basically increase access for communities of color and also help them to be able to sustainably and financially continue to grow while serving under-resourced communities.
0: So impressive. I just you're just an amazing person. And I mean, I said this to you before we started recording, but I just like I so wish we had the record button on when we first talked because they just <laughs> you're just you're just amazing. I wonder are you if you're feeling comfortable. Well, I guess one quick note I just want to put in before I ask this question is like you and I talked about this a little bit before, but what mm-hmm. I've talked about at least either on the YouTube channel or on the podcast briefly mentioning is that like one of the things that's really challenging about working in federally qualified health centers or under-resourced communities or under-resourced clinics or if it's a private practice, even like One of the challenges that people run into is just funding, is having enough money to not just like so much of what we do in primary care. This is just to lay context for people who are either students or newer clinicians. So much of what we do in primary care is like it's you see patients, you get paid, you see patients, you get paid. And when you have extra funding options like grants or some other options, which we can get into if you want to, when we have options it allows us to do more of like the big work that we want to do in terms of improving health care, improving community care. like. That's just, it's, it's, I just like to set that context for people of like, that's kind of what you help people with in terms of especially the second company is helping people access that funding so that they can do the big things that they want to do, whether it's work on larger, smaller projects, things like that. First of all, do you want to add anything to that? And then second of all, if you want to, if you feel comfortable, if you want to share a little bit of your story of like how you got to this place, I just, I was so impacted by that. Um, Whatever you feel comfortable sharing.
1: Of course, yeah, and I think we'll we'll get to both of those um, this way. I think talk, I think starting with the journey is really helpful um, because you know it's not a typical journey. I would say, yeah, in terms of where you know and it's also inspiring. Just- <laughs> it's amazing. Sorry, go
0: ahead. I don't mean to interrupt you guys. No,
1: it's just funny because it's it definitely. I if you asked me when I first started, what are you what are you going to do? Hold <laughs> It definitely was not be an entrepreneur and definitely not do it two times. And so I think ultimately for me, my goal, and I, I mentioned my um, background growing up in a Nigerian household, and, and that was really important for me in terms of being able to experience not only injustice, just in terms of what we experience as being in a Black community in the US, but also to see it at a different scale um during my travels back to nigeria in in childhood and that kind of cemented this like undercurrent i would like to say theme of how can the what i think i want to do with my life actually provide more justice and fairness in, mm-hmm. um for the people who i want to serve and so ultimately my journey really was trying to and it still is and i think this is going to be really important for those listening is that we go into medicine sometimes in a way of this is what we want to do, and we find out things. And yes. then we're like, this actually doesn't fit for me. And mm-hmm. so the initial stage of what I thought when I was thinking about this was to become a pediatrician and to be a pediatrician in communities that were experiencing health injustice. And for me, um, because of my exposure in global settings and seeing the the enormity of, of the dearth of physicians and p- specifically pediatricians within low-income countries, I felt compelled to go to medical school and do global health work in sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America and ultimately finish residency and do work. Um, abroad. So I actually, after residency, to my mother's chagrin, instead of getting a good paying job here <laughs> in, the, in the US as an attending um, and like, you know, addressing my medical school debt, um, I decided <laughs> to travel to Malawi and go work mm-hmm. there for a very lo- much lower salary, um, working with HIV infected youth and being able to help support. Um, getting HIV-infected youth on antiretrovirals and staying alive. And so during that time, what was really important for me was recognizing, and this is where the evolution happens, I was providing clinical care and it was helpful for those Mm -hmm. patients. However, what I was not able to do in the clinic was able to remove the transportation barriers that our families had, was able to... Um, deal with the stockouts when medicine wasn't available for certain families. I wasn't able to deal with what we call the upstream issues. Um, I wasn't able to deal with the fact that there were, that they had to travel, you know, multiple like tens of miles to get without, you know, bus fare or anything like that to get to this one clinic that had all of these pediatricians. And so during that time, I actually volunteered with another one of my colleagues there to work in the northern, more rural part um, to basically help with scaling up pediatric HIV, which meant training, going to different areas in our van, training the staff there on how to do, the local staff, training them on how to start kids, identify kids um, on antiretrovirals. And that work was so meaningful to me, but had nothing to do with me actually seeing a patient. Mm-hmm. It was all training and then helping them develop a system on how they're going to make sure that we document how many kids are actually seen and, and all of that, what I found out later was public health mm-hmm. and health system strengthening. And so that inspired me to do that first evolution, which was move from clinical to now think about how could I actually do this work on a population level and really support um, improving and health justice for our populations, not for a one-on-one, but thinking about how we could build systems. So I ended up leaving, coming back to, to, um, after about, I think it was 13 months, coming back to the US to do an MPH. And during that time I got involved in academia and doing research on how to improve access and utilization. for children in sub-saharan africa i did that did some work in south africa and this and the reason i'm going in depth in this is because i want people to understand how circuitous this is and yes i'm 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 following you especially as an experienced (laughs) clinician
0: i'm like yes i know i'm on the track but thank you for laying those planks for people especially newer people it's all related go ahead
1: correct and how to not be scared of when Mm -hmm. you're like, this is what my vision was. And it's completely shifting. And so during that time of doing research, um, one of the things that I realized was I wanted to get more of us in these settings globally that I was working in and working on research. And I actually got recruited to now become a global health director and create a program where we could train Physicians here to do work in both global settings, but also what we call global settings. So areas mm-hmm. that were very deeply underserved. So um, indigenous, like reservations, um, migrant work um, here in the U.S. Un- work with undocumented immigrants, and so ultimately, I spent. Um, I shifted from research and actually spent a huge amount of my time doing training and working with residents and deploying them, building up partnerships with organizations in both here in the US and then globally in India, Kenya, the Dominican Republic, to be able to um, make sure that uh, residents had the opportunity to know how they could deliver care um, in, in areas that were low resource and also areas that were deeply marginalized and how to do that effectively. Um, while I was doing that, however, I was also seeing patients in Queens, New York. I was also <laughs> Just teaching, on the side, you know, no yeah, big deal. <laughs> you know, I was also teaching an MPH program and um, an associate professor doing that um, in global health. Um, and then I was also um, running two research programs um, in, in my institution that were focused on addressing social issues and how. How do we use the clinical setting to address food insecurity, housing insecurity? These were the things that I was seeing in my clinical work. So I was doing all of that. And as you may imagine, it's very predictable to everyone but me was that I got burnt out. <laughs> I was going to say, are you getting burnt um, <laughs> out here? I feel like I'm getting a little tired, I'm tired yeah. th-
0: on your behalf, thinking about all of that on your plate.
1: <laughs> Correct. And and ultimately, I decided, OK, let me step back a little bit from the clinical work. But um, I ended up filling that with doing advocacy work. Um for immigrant families, particularly because it was in a time when um, during the Trump um, presidency and uh, they were being attacked about a policy called public charge. So I was doing that work and I actually ended up hospitalized um, Mm -hmm. after about six months of just not sitting down. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, I actually ended up in the course of a week, losing the ability to walk, Um, suddenly I was nauseous and in a day had some dizziness and then I couldn't use my right arm and leg. Um, And so ultimately that hospitalization ended up leading to a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. Mm -hmm. And um, this is the other evolution, which is um, the idea when I finally realized um, I was in hospital and I had to give up my work. I couldn't actually do it. And um, they had to find five people to be able to do my work. To do your job. To do your one job that you were doing. Oh my gosh. Exactly. And so that was a revelation. And the next part of my evolution, which was where my doctor told me that if I continued on this path, I probably would have multiple flares from multiple sclerosis and would probably end up in a wheelchair. Um, And so I went to my institution to try and see if I could get support to be able to do this work, um, streamline it, but they did not have the capacity or resources to be able to honor that request. And that was the decision I had to make of do I shift um, mm-hmm. or do I decide, look, I I have to do what I've been doing and I just have to deal? And I think that um, the decision, of course, was that I needed to figure out a way to shift from this. Um, I didn't know what that looked like. But I did know that over that year, myself and my co uh, myself and two other Black female physicians who ended up being my co-founders of Strong Children Wellness, were collectively frustrated with the care that we were providing, and so ultimately, um, even though I was in the hospital and on leave for about four months, um, they were helping us to bring to fruition the idea that we had, which was to build out strong children wellness and be able to provide care closer to the communities and partnership with the communities, um, and not have healthcare be siloed in this. Yeah. Large institution, but be decentralized into the into the organizations that really um have the credibility buy-in and the trust of um communities. So that was kind of the evolution, and that was in 2019 um that led me to where I am right now. And it's been circuitous, um, but it's also been really um interesting and eye-opening in terms of just seeing kind of what the traditional path looks like usually for people and what are the different obstacles that can come up during that.
0: Oh my gosh. I just love that so much. It's just such a beautiful story. And like it's so relatable on so many levels because I think so many people, like you said, like go into healthcare because they want, they have a vision of what it means and what they want to do. And then they get there. And not only is the is it more complicated, I think this, I think this is a universal experience. Is it's more complicated than we expect. And then we may not have the agency that we thought we did, or it might just not it, it might be that it's not really what we actually actually wanted. Right. And so I just really love you sharing that like really complex and beautiful story and like such a big heart that you have and so much ambition that you have. And I just feel like it's so um so it's gonna be so meaningful for people to hear this because so many people are in that position. I think, you know, whether you're a, a student and you kind of like are or new grad and you're kind of in this like brand new situation of like, you know, what am I here for? What am I doing? Or if you're kind of further into practice after a couple of years and you're like, what am I doing? (laughs) And you're kind of like trying to figure that piece out of like, I like this, but I'm not really sure. Yeah.
1: um, And I think, you know, how this relates to your other question, which was about the financial difficulties and challenges, you know, one of the things that was that we didn't get to see as much initially as, you know, academic clinicians inside of large healthcare institutions based in New York was what happens behind the scenes in terms of how this money, how, how does a visit get reimbursed and what does Medicaid look like? And unfortunately, what we've now realized, which I think was hidden from us is that healthcare has really turned into a profit driven, um, uh, industry rather than a purpose-driven industry. You mm-hmm. would assume that it would be more purpose-driven since we're dealing with like people's Demence. lives, right? <laughs> <laughs> but um, not not here in America. Okay? <laughs> uh, and so, you know, one of the things that I think is interesting for us was how could we get back to the purpose and make sure that <laughs> even if we wanted to do this on our own, how would we... Be in a place where we could make decisions that were based mm-hmm. on the value and the and what we were bringing to patients, and make sure that we were doing it based on the impact and not how much income we would be able to take home, mm-hmm. right? Totally. And so what that what that meant was starting to think about a business model yeah. for this that was also socially impactful as well so a business model that made sure that we could be sustainable and make money to continue providing the services but having the impact on there and and so we ended up becoming a for-profit social enterprise and that was done intentionally because we also didn't want to be completely dependent on the kindness of yes (laughs) 100%. Philanthropists yes. and grants and all of that. Oh but gosh. we wanted to be able to we knew from our work as um academics inside of institutions that we had a skill set of yeah. if this didn't if this wasn't available for our patients, we could write it into existence. So yeah. that was where we started Oof. learning how to write grants and put them together and find the right people to be able to fund. And so from that experience, all three of us were doing that. We decided when we said, okay, we're gonna embark on this, we had a different perspective that I think is different from people who don't um, maybe have that background, which was, we're not gonna just find capital and go in and like, you know, find a loan, but why don't we write a grant for this? (laughs) Like, Why don't we put this together? Now, the only issue, was unlike our institutions, which um, qualify as tax exempt and and have access to grant dollars, we Mm -hmm. were not as a for-profit. And so what we realized was, what do we have available? And that's going to be a really important piece for anybody who's thinking about the ideas and things that they want to bring into fruition, is not saying, oh, I'm going to need this, I'm going to need that. But what is it that you actually have? And what we Mm -hmm. had were partnerships. We did already have connections with community-based organizations who were chomping at the bit to try and figure out how they could bring health care services to their families. And so we went to one of my longtime partners and said, we want to figure out if we can build this model where we can actually bring primary care into your organization. Mm. And of course they were excited and they, and we said, this is the model. This is what it would look like. And they allow for us to be able to bring that jointly to one of their past funders and say, this is something new that we want to embark on. And that Mm -hmm. was how we got our without, you know, anything on the ground, we had nothing. We just had what was written on the paper. We got our hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars to be able to put into it. So that is one of the models that we've been able to utilize to support. So grant. Grants through partnerships it's called fiscal sponsorship, but then the other one that we were able to also utilize is contracts. By being able to say, okay, what areas, what places are need healthcare, need healthcare um, uh, services, and they want them to be embedded and in, in, inside of their organizations, mm-hmm. and what organizations have access to have you know financial solvency to be able to pay for that. And so yeah. another model in addition to the work that we do um embedded within community based organizations is that we outsource some of our providers to um to serve Organizations that serve psycho-socia- psychosocially complex youth. So, foster care agencies, residential treatment facilities, they actually will pay us monthly to help make sure that we can bring our providers right there into their organizations to provide mm-hmm. conti- continuous care. So, those are two of the things contracts, um, grant dollars, and then, of course, just trying to figure out ways that we can really um, look at the Medicaid system, which is highly flawed <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and very complex, but ways that we could look at how we could, where are there potential opportunities to provide even more in-depth care for families? And one of the great places that we've been doing that is looking at behavioral health and case management and integrating that. And that actually has made our primary care and our health outcomes much stronger. Oh, wow. Because of the fact that we're able to now expand and provide mental health and um, and care and, and social care coordination and management for our families,
0: I love that. And so, just to just to back up for a second, so and when you're talking about, um, so I just I just want to like re people who are not familiar with your work. Um, that your first the first company you mentioned is a like private and correct me if I'm misunderstanding, but it's like a private practice but that is um, a really like a wraparound community service where it has the social, not just primary care, but all of the kind of like social structures that are needed mm-hmm. and the way that you fund and you have multiple sites, correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the way that you've, you've figured out how to fund them is through these community partnerships. Is that
1: correct? Correct. So the community partners are really important, like community partners sometimes on their own will, identify grant opportunities and say, hey, can we write you in for like, to be able to provide health services, you know, for our families here mm-hmm. and for the community and, and they'll write us in and, you know, but we're also, we've also been really diligent in finding opportunities. They're not often, but grants yeah. that are, are available to for-profits. Yeah, And yeah. so far we've been able to secure about, Mm $1.4 in grants since we uh, started in 2020 for like on our, you know, through partnership and then on our own to be able to um, provide the services that we provide outside of our, like, you know, just reimbursement and our revenue. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's amazing. Um, Can, do you, would it be okay to pivot a little bit to your second company, Melanin and Medicine? I think like, and I mentioned this at the very beginning of our recording, but like Um, At least this is my experience. And so I'd love to hear your experience. And like, if you have examples of like people that you've worked with, with this company um, or groups that you've worked with, with this company, but my experience is working in federally qualified health centers under resourced. um, It's really Medicaid primarily reimbursements. And like, I would be given a schedule. I would see this number of patients. We would, you know, do billing and coding to you know as accurately as possible but there didn't seem to be like a ton of difference between the different levels um of uh complexity of a visit to how much money the the company actually got back the federally qualified center health center got back and so it was really a bit of a numbers game where it was like you just saw as many patients as they could to keep the doors open and to pay the bills but like on a higher level like i pay attention to the stuff because i'm nosy and curious about it but um you know they would give the you know, annual presentation at the end of the year about the financials of the company. And it was like, oh, well, 70% of our revenue actually comes from patient visits. Mm -hmm. um, And then 30% comes from grant funding. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they would apply like a various number of people, whether they had a dedicated grant writer, which one of the clinics I worked in did versus another clinic, which was just kind of like, well, if you want to do a project about improving HIV care, And you're going to want to take four hours out of your week to do that you need to get a grant to be able to pay your salary for those hours because otherwise we can't we can't pay you we can't pay the bills without you seeing patients Mm -hmm. um so i guess that's just an example to like set some context for people um is and and i'd love to hear like is that an experience that you've heard other places because you've worked with so many people and that um yeah and then if you want to just talk about what you do with melanin medicine um related to those situations.
1: Yeah. I mean, first of all, that was totally the same. It's not the same. Right. So federally qualified health centers have a specific focus and mission and, you know, but in terms of academic health centers as well, you know, the goal was like, if you're not teaching, if you're not, (laughs) if you're not seeing patients and you want to start this, like, you know, social care coordination program. Go Everything find costs the money. <laughs> exactly. Go find the grant to do yes. it, and and that's fine, you know. And so um, it got to a point where I had gotten so many grants to do inside of the institution that I was probably overfunded, but I was still seeing patients because mm-hmm. my mm-hmm. patients would have probably rioted <laughs> if, I, <laughs> if I wasn't in the clinic. Um, yeah. But I think you know, ultimately, you are correct. That is pretty much we are in a system that um, is a two-tier system, sadly, right? A system that says that if you're low income, we don't have to give the providers um, the, the money that they, the organizations or the providers the money that they need to be able to truly serve you at the highest level. We just have to give enough. And it's usually not even enough for the bare yeah. minimum, Yeah. Um. which is the sad part. And so there are grants and and for federally qualified health centers. And there's a heightened reimbursement mm-hmm. um, than, let's say, a private practice or a non federally qualified to, yeah. to help at least, you know, yeah. even even that out a little bit. But it's still very much very small margins to really do exciting, innovative, impactful work. That yeah. doesn't, you know, that it doesn't encroach on the time, which is so important in health, um, in healthcare. And yeah. so, you know, when we talk about now out my work around this was that as a BIPOC practice owner and getting confronted with all of this, you know, as you're doing because you're like, you have this dream and it's like okay, we're going to do this and we're going to serve all of these people. And then you start looking at profit and loss statements (laughs) and you start looking at financials and you're like, uh, we got (laughs) to think about something different in order to make this go. And luckily, because we had approached our care model in a way that was different from see patients get money, see patients get money. And we had focused on contracts with nonprofits or collaborating with them to get grant dollars and to help with hires of people so that we wouldn't have to like take that out of our revenue. That allowed for us to be um, innovative in terms of, oh, these are other ways to keep cash flow um, going and to make sure that we could still serve people and have 30 minute 45 minute, 60 Mm -hmm. minute visits Mm -hmm. with our patients because of that additional. So when, when we started experiencing that, I kind of was like, this should, we should figure out how we make more of us in particular able to do this. And the thought process for me in terms of BIPOC practice owners um, is really intentional in the fact that um, there was a study last year in JAMA that, showed how important it was for Black primary care physicians. But I allude, I kind of make that broad to pretty much clinicians in primary care and include mental health, because I believe all of that is connected and under the same umbrella. Um, But it showed that having a Black primary care physician reduced all-cause mortality and morbidity in regionally and increased life expectancy, not if that individual was your physician, but just the, them being in oh that area. And it was like, yes, this is- So many chills. We, oh my gosh. It's what amazing. We know that had not been put on paper, but what we know, and the issue for me was that a lot of BIPOC practices, you know, were- having difficulties with cash flow because the focus was on under-resourced communities, Mm -hmm. but it was really difficult to figure out how to continue to take care of these these families with really low reimbursement. And so my thought process was we were doing a bit better in that and able to sustain. And these contract relationships and grants were a really important part of that. So the goal was, how do I standardize like, and teach how to develop relationships with nonprofits locally, and figure out ways that you can create connections that identify what are the needs of the communities that you both serve, and mm. what is the capacity for them to be able to um, afford either bringing you on as a contract, as a subcontractor, or joint, or finding grants to bring you into their in, um, to to bring your healthcare services into their organization and the communities they serve. And so that's what we do in Melanin Medicine. We ha- we identify BIPOC practice owners. Um, we have had some non-BIPOC practice owners on a case-by-case basis, depending mm-hmm. on like the what their, um, what the makeup of their practices and who they're serving and all of that. Um, but majority it's been BIPOC practice owners. And what we do is we help to identify, we learn what the vision is that has not either been manifested because of financial issues. And then we identify who are the organizations that would be the right partners for them. Mm -hmm. And then we help them with making those connections and putting together what the offers could look like that either that nonprofit partner could transition for a grant or Mm -hmm. that nonprofit partner could say, you know what, we can contract you to do this. Mm -hmm. And we help them make those, get those contracts. And so that's looked like, You know, for one of our organizations, that looked like them, a mental health organization working with an organization that serves resident youth um, who are unhoused and being able to bring their mental health services directly into that organization. So now those youth have access to wellness support groups. Um, It's looked like one of the other ones that we had is uh, another one who's working with a YWCA and being able to, and who serves sexual assault victims and being able to bring their OBGYN services finally to them with this, with this practice who is led by an or uh, a practitioner who has done sexual assault violence, um, you know, I'm sorry, has done uh, OBGYN Same. services for, yes, for mm-hmm. sexually assault sexual assault victims, mm-hmm. and also has a really good depth of how to provide ongoing gyne care in a way that's responsive to that trauma, right? And so that's the, that's the kind of connections where we just help to facilitate those and then allow for the organizations to figure out on their own, can we do this by pursuing a grant or can we do this through a contract and being able to bring those funds in so that organization can bring their healthcare services more um, closer to the community and the community and the community-based organization can now you know really have a holistic full um scale you know full scope of services for the families that they serve
0: i love that oh my gosh you're just so special you're such a special person and like oh i just feel like the world is a better place that you're here and like you get to talk to all these people on this podcast i just like feel so emotional thank you so much this is so cool
1: thank you for that I think we're at a a work I think well I I think all of us are a work in progress I definitely feel like that um day to day um especially if you ask my two daughters they're like I don't know if she's that special but
0: I know it's isn't it the worst your your own kids are just like yep yeah okay whatever exactly (laughs) <laughs> oh gosh! Well, this has been so so cool. Um, are there other other things that you want to share? Um, to you know, the new nurse practitioners, experienced nurse practitioners, uh, physician associates, physician associate students. I don't think I have a ton of physicians um, that listen to the podcast or, but maybe there are. Um,
1: no. Yeah. I mean, actually, so as a practice that currently is, <laughs> we're currently recruiting, actually, we're trying to hire a family. As a practitioner. Uh, Ooh, amazing. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, let me put that out there if you're in yes. New York, but I think um, ultimately as a practice, I was going to say that, it has a diversity of clinicians, right? Including, you know, as I said, trying to, we all we have a nurse practitioner on staff, but also uh, mental health, you know, uh, social workers, um, care managers, all sorts of things. I think what's really important about how we move forward in healthcare for me as a physician, which is why when I talk about melanin medicine, it's very, very clear I'm not talking about BIPOC physicians. I'm very clear about that. BIPOC clinicians, because I feel like we need all hands on deck. Yeah. I feel like we all have these different experiences, you know, especially nurses in particular, a very different experience from us as physicians in terms yeah. of, I would assume, how they approach care as well, just yeah. given kind of the intimacy of, yeah. of the training and the, and the work that you do before you become nurse practitioners. And I just feel like we need all of that to truly provide like equitable care that is responsive so in my head I'm always thinking about I know New York has been able to be uh, more uh, lenient now and allowing nurse practitioners to be able to practice you know yeah. on their own and I'm excited about that but I'm also excited about the partnerships and I just yeah. think we have to think about how do we become more interprofessional, right? I Absolutely. think there's a lot of, you can not do this, I can do this, or who can do this? And I'm just hoping that even just being on your podcast and allowing for me to be able to be here as a non-nurse practitioner. Totally, <laughs> totally. Um, I just want to really make sure that we're thinking about looking I I think it's important to look at who's doing the work that you're doing and not focusing so much on what their degree is, but just on what they're manifesting and and being open to having conversations about how they're doing that, especially if it's aligned with your vision. Um, I just want to make sure we reduce those silos. um, Absolutely. I think healthcare breathes in a really negative way.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And that's one of the things I just, I get so excited about with this podcast is bringing on guests like yourself or like other specialties or, you know, other disciplines. Like it's just, I think that's, I think we can, I think sometimes it can feel overwhelming when we think about the challenges of the healthcare system as a whole. um, And it can be easy to get discouraged. I don't know, at least for me, I have to, I have to work myself up about it sometimes, but I feel like we just, we do have so much agency when it comes to those interpersonal relationships with people like we we can have impact on a on a larger system when we come together um and work together on on what we're all trying to get get going um I wonder if there's anything um you any anything you'd recommend I think that I'm just kind of tapping into like the the there are people who who want to see you know, more com- true community health and not just, I work in a federally qualified center, And I just give that example because that's my experience, but I've heard a lot of people say like, oh, I just like, I really actually want this to be more of like a community care and not just, you know, my regular day-to-day seeing patients or like, I would love to, like, if they're just feeling called forward in terms yeah. of what, what, what next steps, like, where would you kind of recommend whether it's yeah. following on with your stuff or other organizations or I don't know, any thoughts
1: on that? So- yeah, total many thought and definitely um feel free for your listeners to, you know, connect with me on LinkedIn. That's like Amazing. the last social media place where I actually show up. Um totally. probably I'm I'm becoming very
0: yeah, no, it's true. I've pulled word. back quite a bit. Yes. Exactly. But LinkedIn, I, I would like to re-engage with. Yes. I think it's so, so nice to
1: Feel free to connect with me about that. But I think, um, and I think I think I actually have some resources on my LinkedIn featured section that cool. might be helpful for people. Cool. But I think in terms of community, for me, it was to to be humble. And mm-hmm. I'm gonna start like that's the thing. Like I feel like you know, healthcare, and especially for us physicians, it positions us as, it, it, and it actually trains us to be kind of these patriarchal, mm-hmm, savior mm-hmm. people. And we're like, uh, we're human too. Yes. And, and it puts all of that on us. And I think it does not. And it almost value says that our professional expertise is more valuable than the expertise that communities already have about yeah. their their needs are of their needs and so what I usually say is figure out who you want to serve figure out where the need is and figure out who is in any way touching that Mm -hmm. and who's already doing stuff yeah Yeah. you don't have to reinvent it and and that was kind of you know how we started where it was like the way I connected with my community partner who eventually became our first child center of New York and Queens um was We noticed when we were trying to address social needs and other things, we didn't have the capacity inside of the organization. And so we kept referring and then we realized we kept referring to this one organization because they had so many service connections. And the thought was we should go meet this organization and the people who are there and just get out of the clinic and just go figure out who these amazing people are. And I think it starts with being humble and then, Getting out of the four walls of your clinical work and just finding who is that, don't have to find 800 organizations. Who's the one organization that you're like, what they're doing is really cool and I'm inspired by it? And what are the issues that they have right now? And could there be any way that I could be helpful? And so going in not with an agenda, but discovery with a lens of the discovery. And I think that's how the best partnerships are born.
0: It's beautiful. I love that. And like the getting out of the four walls, the humility, I think that also reminds me too of like, especially when I was a newer clinician is like, just that connectedness of being with, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, like even like I would see the names of the physicians that we would be referring to in a specialty. Um, and like we had very specific places we could refer because of the Medicaid um, insurance situation. And so it's like, yeah, I just like, it just reminds me of that curiosity too, is like, you know, can you, um, it's, I know that people get so bogged down in terms of the workload of primary care. And it feels like, oh my gosh, oh, this like extra thing. But like those connections, those community partnerships, those like, you know, seeing what else is out there and being all connected, like we can work better together. And that will really, I just feel like it'll really lighten the load um, if we can take those initiatives.
1: It will. And I also feel like, what people don't tap into is the new learners and the new generation, because the way we were able to do a lot of the work that we did when I was still at my prior institution was by tapping into our local public health school. And, Mm -hmm. and it was just amazing one because they actually needed and wanted to be able to do this kind of innovative work, but then also, It was this other lens of being able to like help new the new generation see how they could provide care in a completely different way. So just tapping into not only the communities, but also thinking about the learners of health and how and what what are the potential opportunities there to help support you? Because all I know is that team is completely necessary. And a lot of us, medicine doesn't teach us that. (laughs) No, 100% no. Yeah. So just remembering that as well is going to be really important. I love
0: that. Well, thank you so much. Um, So it sounds like we can find you on LinkedIn and those will be in the show notes. Any other places you want to refer people to like your uh, website or Instagram or something like that?
1: Yeah. So our website um, for melanin medicine, if you're a BIPOC practice owner and kind of like, I need more (laughs) Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that is melanin and medicine. So and co. And then for our practice, if you want to learn more, especially if you're a family nurse practitioner based in New York.
0: <laughs> <laughs> a little plug Are in
1: there. You- I mean, people, you will get the people. I promise. Yes, go ahead. I'd like the work that we're doing. You, you can go to strongchildrenwellness.com. So good. So good.
0: <laughs> you're the best. Thank you so, so, so much. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. This was such a pleasure. It's very cathartic speaking with you, Liz. So keep doing what you're doing. I know podcasting is not easy, but Oh,
0: I love it. I would do it all day. Honestly, (laughs) I just shop talk all day. My favorite thing. That's our episode for today. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you subscribe, leave a review and tell all your NP friends. So together we can help as many nurse practitioners as possible. Give the best care to their patients. If you haven't gotten your copy of the ultimate resource guide for the new NP, head over to realworldnp.com slash guide. You'll get these episodes sent straight to your inbox every week with notes from me, patient stories, and extra bonuses I really just don't share anywhere else. Thank you so much again for listening. Take care and talk soon.